Tad Jessup, your host of Canada FM, along with Brian. Hello. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> anyway, we take You make it seem it. like this is your show. I'm just like the sad... Well, that's uh, why, Brian. You need to get your presence announced. You gotta have I'm some like, spell in there. Hello, I'm it's like, Brian! That's what it should be. I'm like Monty from Major League, where he's like, yeah, I heard that. I know my drop-in one. Monty. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we take a look at Canadian bands or artists that didn't really make it big anywhere else but Canada. You know, it's crazy about today's, today's band, because I picked them because they had this real signature song, and it was a really, really great song, and I couldn't figure out why that song didn't make it through. But as we did the research, it actually became a little bit more interesting. It became the story of one band, two guys, two very different, should I say, passions for music, tastes, direction, what they wanted to do with their careers, uh, and ultimately almost two different, complete different sounding bands. And at least it has a happy ending to this point it does. So that's kind of what I got out of this. Yeah, it was a, uh, not going to lie, bit of a slog, <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> And you said it's like like the tagline to the show is we're not like 90 percent of the time we're wondering why these bands weren't bigger. Mm-hmm. The message is very simple. Why this band was not bigger. <laughs> we'll, get to that the, we'll get to it at the end. Okay, but, uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's a little more complex than you're, you're giving it credit for. But that's just me. That's just me. But uh, in, in case you haven't guessed, and you probably haven't because we've been very nondiscreet about who this is, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's Trouble Charger, the man Trouble Charger. And Brian, their story begins in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario in 1992. Do you have any memories of the Big Sioux, home of Big Sioux's tap water taffy? Uh, no. The only, I know one person from there, a guy I worked with when I worked at uh, Tim Horton's Children's Foundation and he sounded exactly like that stereotypical Canadian like oh I'm from the Sioux like he's like a (laughs) hockey player in the 70s and I'm just like oh my god why don't you go to like the Rochester Americans and get out of my face Um, he's a nice guy they have a great hockey team in the Sioux the Sioux Greyhounds are uh, they're legendary he was a nice guy. I shouldn't. I, I make him sound like some rube, but he was a nice guy. He just loved to hunt and fish and do all that outdoorsy stuff. Hence why he was working at a camp. Well, it's where North. As someone who lives in Thunder Bay, Sault Ste. Marie is where Northern Ontario truly begins. A lot of people say it begins in Parry Sound or it begins in Sudbury. Nah, it begins in the Sioux. Basically, if you're traveling from Toronto to Thunder Bay, your journey is halfway done at the Sioux. That's when the North starts. Mother of God. Hey, so speaking of Sioux, aren't like the entire Toronto Maple Leafs front office from the Sioux Greyhounds? Isn't that where they all cut their teeth in hockey? Dubas did, yeah. So I assume yeah. he probably, I don't know every single person in the front office, but Dubas is from there. So he probably brought some of his guys over. I'm also really disappointed that you didn't get my Simpsons reference when I started talking about Sioux St. Marie. Well, I got it. Maybe laugh. There's not a reference yeah. you can throw at me that goes over my head from... <laughs> Like, season one to nine, I'm solid. Well, although uh, usually on this show, we try to avoid um, talking, bogging ourselves down with lineup changes too much. So I'll just give you the core lineup for Trouble Charger. Uh, it consists of guitar player and singer Greg Nori, uh, guitar player and singer Bill Priddle, bassist Rosie Martin, I believe Rosie is short for Roosevelt, and drummer Trevor McGregor, although the band has had five drummers in its history. Now, the first name of this group was NC-17, but they were forced to change their name thanks to legal action from an American band of the same name. And they also did not sound anything like the pop-punk powerhouse they'd become. This is what I'm talking about when I say they almost sounded like two different bands in their history. Uh, Brian, how would you describe the early Trouble Charger sound? I would Describe the early treble charger sound. Well, as soon as I put on track one of the first album, yeah. it's just like this, like ding 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 ding. I'm like, wow, this just sounds like somebody's walking onto the set of singles or something. It's just like that. Everything just sounds mid '90s. It's just lost in that era. It was very of its time. Yeah. Very of its time. I call it a little, little well, you know, the, the other thing too about that time when they were indie influenced is that Bill Priddle 
did the majority of the singing. And later that would shift when they make the transition to pop punk and Greg Norrie would do most of the singing. And uh, I kind of found his voice, especially in those early indie rock days, to be a little monotone and boring. Yeah, I made this joke to you off air last week, but I yeah. said uh, him and uh, John K. Sams can go on an annoying voice nasal tour from The Weaker Thans and uh, Propagandi. You know what, though? He's got a little more. There's almost like a spoken word element to the guy from uh, the Weekend Ends uh, voice. Like, there's almost like a little bit of humor in it. Oh, uh, there is. Bill yeah. just. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a sense of like uh, folksiness in John K. Sampson's voice and a bit of life. Those first two <laughs> albums, it sounded like a guy was like all hepped up on like quaaludes or something. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to apologize to Bill Priddle's family if they are listening to this. <laughs> I do promise you, this whole podcast will not just be shitting on him we do have couple at least i have i was about to say things to say about him as it goes along i was (laughs) about to say i make no promises (laughs) now just because they couldn't call their band nc7 doesn't mean they couldn't call their album that and that's exactly what they did for their debut independent release in 1994 uh just like ill scarlet's first release that we covered last week um a lot the album many of the tracks of the album would be re-recorded years later Uh, in fact the entire album was re-released three years later in 1997 on Hamilton's Sonic Onion Records. We're both proud Hamiltonians. Uh, what are your memories of Sonic Onion? I remember we'd go down there sometimes and look around and, well, not end up buying anything. <laughs> well, that's where I bought my first Dropkick Murphys album. I brought, oh, is that right? I bought, yeah, I got Sing Loud, Sing Proud there. Okay. Because, well, actually, I got the live album at an HMV in Burlington Mall, but my first actual Dropkick Murphys album yeah. was that one. Jeez, my first uh, Dropkick Murphys album was Sing Loud, Sing Proud, but I got it from Future Shop in the Meadowlands, <laughs> like Boxing Day. Anyway, I, I never bought anything from Sonic Onion. It was either, I think because it was so underground, the bands that they were selling there were a little bit too underground for me. And I was a little bit more underground than the rest of the student body. But I was all into punk and ska, not necessarily independent alternative rock. So right. maybe I just missed the boat. And also I was I do remember when I went in to go try to find one of the records, it was this band Warsaw Pack that me and you saw open for Bad Religion. Yeah, and the casualties. And the casualties. And I specific going in there uh, to look for that disc because apparently the guy worked there and they were assigned to Sonic Onion, so I figured they'd be there easy to find. And uh yeah, no such luck, I couldn't find it. <sighs> There you go. Um, two singles were released from this disc. Tenth Grade Love. And Red. Now, Red would become a bigger hit later on yeah. uh, when it was included in their uh, third release. But uh, even though neither of these songs would get significant play on college radio, uh, significant play on regular radio stations, uh, they did on college radio stations as well as much music and uh, Edge 102. They picked up uh, some of the tunes from NC-17. Uh, this is a strange first release because while it sounds nothing like what Trouble Charger would first would become later, I think it's the perfect gateway into that Canadian indie rock sound of the time. That would become very popular later by bands like the Arcade Fire and the Broken Social Scene. And Bill Priddle considers himself to be a founding non-member of Broken Social Scene. So never actually a member, but he helped found the band, even though he was never actually in it. He just kind of, you know, they they got like 25 members and they're never the same group of people when you see them. So he's he's one of those guys who filters in and out. Well, yeah, because those Toronto, those like hipster scene, the artists, they were all hanging around to the same places just like back on like Queen Street in the 60s and 70s where all the yeah. artists knew each other same deal it's just this is it's like now in uh, stand-up comedy where all of the friends just jump on each other's podcasts it's the same thing it's like why don't you play on this record hey, why don't you just join the band let's just emerge these five bands and make one super band and just have it all interchangeable but isn't that what music's about just making music with your buds I mean it is a sense of community but it's just much yeah. it's much more of a pretentious community now if you got four drummers and ten guitar players <laughs> really care at the end of the day. Yeah, I'd, get, just, I'd get really mad if they had a theremin. That would just tip it off. 
<laughs> he was doing. He is the hell out of fishbone. I know. Dr. Mad Vibe loves his theremin. Yeah, but because yeah. he's nuts. There's a difference <laughs> when these guys are just trying to be like, we're artistic and we're outside the box. <laughs> Now, for my tastes, I thought uh, NC-17 was a little bit lo-fi from me. But it's not going to be appealed to me. I like big horns, big choruses in my music. And this was just kind of jangly. Like, got a bit of a jangly feel to it. Uh, there was at least one track that was like a precursor to Shoegaze, it sounded like, where it was just kind of straight ahead and didn't stop. I don't know. It wasn't really my thing, but it wasn't really designed for my tastes. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on NC-17? Anything? I knew the song Red, and I liked Red because... I heard it on the 97 album, like the re-release, yeah. but I don't think, I never caught NC-17. I only started listening to The Self and then everything after that, so I missed it. You know what, Red? Now that you mentioned Red, because I was going to talk about it later, because it became a bigger hit when it was released later. I'm not big on that one. Like, it doesn't stick with me. It's not bad, but this is a, like, you know, friend of mine, American Psycho, brand new low we're gonna get into all of those those are very sing-along tunes red is just like oh yeah it's the slow one it's kind of my impression of that song. you make it sound like barney singing like just a little irish ditty my mother sang <laughs> you know what i would love to hear the irish tenors cover red by <laughs> i think they do a hell of a job with that song and uh, give it a little bit of a different focus all right the band would make a lot more noise in 1995 when they released their album Self. Should be noted that, the bit, that it's called Self, uh, sorry, called Self titled, not Trevor Charger, but the album's actually called Self titled to avoid any and all confusion. Uh, they were able to play for the recording of Self with prize money that they received for finishing second in a Toronto radio station's Battle of the Bands competition. I'm guessing it's Edge 102 because they were the only real like alternative rock station at the time in Toronto. And, uh, you know, they always had a really, really good relationship with Edge. At least it is what it seems like in the past. Yeah, unless they, Ryerson or York or UOT got some massive grant or something. It's like a huge prize money. I don't know, but probably yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they don't have that kind of funding no. over there. Believe me, Brian and I did our time in college radio. Oh, yeah. Like, when I went to back to the University of Windsor, every year we were doing fundraisers. Like, despite the fact that some of the student fees and they get sponsorship and all these things, are just like, we still need money or we go under, so please <laughs> save us because nobody cares about college radio. Oh, yeah. You'd have a fundraiser to keep the lights on for a week. Yeah. And that was it. You know what's funny? I love college radio. I thought the stuff that we would play at uh, in, in Niagara College was awesome. Oh, yeah. It was like, right up my alley. Yeah, it was even a little bit like more low-key than uh, Edge 102 was. It was great. C-Jam was fantastic for that because uh, everyone brought in a very eclectic taste. And it's people who were doing it for free because they loved – like some of these people weren't even students. They had jobs. They just came in and programmed a show for an hour or two. Yeah. And everyone brought something new to the table. And you do it so for your nice. love of music, really. Yeah. That's what you do or the experience uh, to get a job in radio, which uh, you know, one always, guy. Uh, always helps out. There's one guy that came in from Detroit. I mean, it's not exactly a huge schlep, but it's yeah. like the fact that you're going over the border. It's still a pain. To do this. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, with the release of Self-Titled, Trouble Charger did something what I thought was ahead of its time. The album also served as a CD-ROM, and when you loaded it into your Mac or PC, a little program would come up that promoted Trouble Charger's top 30 favorite Canadian indie bands. Bands that would receive some moderate success, like the Inbreds, Hayden, Thrush Hermit, and By Divine Right, which at one point of the career uh, included a pre-famed Feist on lead guitar. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah. So that's a cool move. I used to stumble across those CD-ROM extras, usually when I was burning the CD. Because uh, <laughs> you got to put it right into your hard drive and, oh, oh! Look at this cool stuff that I can do. I remember the band uh, The Urge. I got their album from the library for free and decided to uh, to burn it. And I put it in. They actually had a little video game that you could play where you're the band members. And it was really crappy. Like, it involved you basically jumping over fireballs and eating cheeseburgers. But it was fun. I didn't expect it. You got any the memories only, of uh, CD-ROMs? The only one that I remember was the Weezer. The Buddy Holly music video popped up. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool little addition to go along uh, with your album. Now, here's something, though, that pissed me off. When Treble Charger was eventually signed to uh, RCA Records, and they would go on to have major problems with the American branch of RCA Records. I'll get into that later. Um, one of the biggest things they did is that when they released Self-Titled in the U.S., um, they changed all of the Canadian bands featured on the CD-ROM to American ones. And I wrote in the script, Boo! <laughs> with 
10 O's. Motherfuckers. All these <laughs> bands could have more success, more notoriety down south, but because of RCA's greed, we don't get that, do we? Well, it's yeah. the fact that they probably, I mean, some of those American bands were on RCA, would be my guess, so they want to promote their own bands. And I guess at the end of the day, you know, it's part of the free market capitalism. It's not their job to promote these other people. I know that's what Travel Charger was trying to do, but it's, it's survival of the fittest out there, and those other bands are not fit enough. <laughs> Oh, 100%. See, so RCA American bands any better than one of these Canadian bands? Plus, oh, they're probably dog's breakfast, but... But that's the thing. When you're buying this disc, clearly you like the sound of Treble Charger. And clearly hearing bands that they like is going to be something that appeals to you. That can only be designed, uh, sorry, figured out by the band itself and not by the faceless label who's just going to try to promote their own artists. Orsaki, Brian, it's Orsaki. <laughs> All right. Uh, These labels will screw you anyway. They can. Corporate fat cats. Now, the album actually earned the band their first Juno nomination, uh, 1997, for Best Alternative Album. Unfortunately, actually, I don't know if it's unfortunately, because I think this was the right call. They gave it to one chord uh, to another by Sloan. That is a way better album. album. (laughs) Not even close. We are not shitting on Travel Charger on this podcast. No, like, I listened to this album, the self-titled one, multiple times. Like, it's not just something that I'm just like, eh, do it once and over. I actually listened to it multiple times to give it the benefit of the doubt. And it's weird. It's just the the voice did not match the guitar. Because these guitars, like you said, they were jangly and they kind of had a little life to them. And they tried to do some stuff. But the voice was just, it's like, you get a a team of sprinters and you get, like, Fatty McGee, who's like, wait up. Fellas, I can't catch up. Oh, like he just doesn't match. Well, you know, one particularly uh, negative review I uh, read of this uh, basically summed it up by saying it sounds like more of a collection of song ideas than it does a full-fledged rock album. It comes yeah. and it goes very quickly. Doesn't really leave much of an impression. And yeah, you know, what? The they had way. better albums in their career than this one. Uh, it's not a big dud or anything like that. You know, if you like it, you like it. But uh, yeah, that's kind of where it was. They released some singles off of this. I'm just kind of power through some of these other notes. <laughs> this album, uh, even Grable reached number six on the rock charts. While morale peaked at number 16. And uh, was one of two treble charger singles uh, to release the overall singles charts in Canada, which, uh, you know, we had our rock singles and we had like the ones where Celine Dion's in there, too, and everything like that. Uh, I reached number 41 on that landscape. So, uh, you know, what? not bad for a small release. Yeah. Uh, by 1997, it looked like treble charger had figured things out at least from my mind. They released Maybe It's Me on Vic Records, which came with a distribution deal in the United States. And it was produced by a fellow by the name of Lou Giordano, who has produced records for the Goo Goo Dolls, uh, Sunny Day Real Estate, I believe the original drummer and bassist from the Foo Fighters were at yeah. Sunny Day Real Estate. And uh, he also served for years as the sound man for Husker Du. Huh. Yeah, so this guy's got experience and, you know, a couple of different pies. And he knows how to make things nice and loud, which mm. is probably what Trouble Charger was looking for at the time. It was the first album to peak at... It was the first album to chart, peaking at number 77, and it would later reach gold status with more than 50,000 albums sold. And the singles off of this album did really well, too. A re-recorded version of Rad from NC-17... reached number 10 on the rock charts. I know I was kind of shitting on it earlier, but it did pretty well on the charts. And How She Died not only peaked at number 20, but it was also featured on an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. This deal with Vic Records started to look like it was paying off. Now, the Hold first on. single off... Go ahead. Sorry, I'm not still... done with singles. Oh, okay. Sorry. There's a big one. There's a big one. I, haven't yeah, I was about to say, I'm like, <laughs> it was a bigger single than that, but go ahead. <laughs> this is their biggest single to date. Hey, look at all this hype we have. And you know what? At this point, it was their best single to date. I really like this song. And now you've made me lose my place. Thanks a lot, bud. Oh, <laughs> friend of mine. I call you a friend. 
Borderline was a bonafide hit, reaching number nine on the rock charts and number 41 on the overall charts. And it even got some exposure in the States as ESPN used it as its theme song for the 1997 Extreme Games Wakeboarding Championship. There is something about Canadians and wakeboarding. It is like the one water-based sport that's done better on a lake than like by a beach. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's funny because people make fun of Canada. They're like, oh, do you guys even get summer? Yet we have some of the most beautiful cottage country. <laughs> and I know a few people that love going wakeboarding. Yeah, it's a big thing for the cottage country folks. Uh, they don't go water skiing. They go wakeboarding. You know, we don't produce surfers in Canada. Well, maybe Vancouver does. But uh, we produce wakeboarders. So kudos to ESPN well, it, for finding that connection and using a Canadian uh, uh, band to promote that. It even got big enough that we had our own wake stock remember that i remember wake stock and uh correct me if i'm wrong was wasn't trouble charger a headliner of uh, wake stock one year well i did a quick search <laughs> yeah and i searched trouble charger wake stock the first thing that came up was edge fest so i don't think they did but no, either way didn't do wake who knows anyway. it's not our job to be 100 uh, percent <laughs> accurate research your own damn black that doesn't make any sense because <laughs> Yes, we search it properly. <laughs> you know, um, I would say out of the first couple of releases, maybe It's Me was probably my favorite, especially of that first incarnation kind of, of yeah. uh, Trouble Charger. They made a lot of crucial improvements on this record. Greg Norrie stepped up to become the band's front man, and on the tracks where Bill Priddle does sing lead, he's got a little more life to his voice. They found also a good compromise in their competing influences. You know, Priddle was Mr. Indie Rock. That was his vibe. Greg Norrie was kind of like, whatever's hip, whatever can make us money and get us on the charts. So they used enough of Bill Priddle's indie, jangly indie rock sound to make him happy. And Norrie had the commercial vibe that this turned out to be a big success. Uh, Here's my only gripe with this album. I'm digging it. I'm in a groove. I get like six or seven songs in and again, this is not a Bill Priddle shit fest, but I think he does like two back-to-back -back songs and I completely lost my momentum. And I was like, all right, I get it. I get this album. I get it. I get <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it's, I mean... Production-wise, it's a huge step up. Uh, there's more life in the, the guitars. There's more life in the vocals, like you said. Uh, it sticks with you more than the self-titled one, but it's still, it still it felt very much like a, okay, it comes and goes. You take it out of your CD player, you put it back on your shelf, and you don't listen to it again. I, I, I think it, for me, it's, it was a little better than that. For me, it would have been the one, of the, the one I bought that I would put in the CD player on pretty regular rotation, but I would never listen to it from the beginning to the end it was like all right tracks three to five and now tracks eight to twelve yeah. you always leave off two or three songs i think that would be me i also made a note i was a big fan of the song scatterbrain i like that song i wrote love the horns because you know i'm a yeah, horny I'm guy really uh-huh huh? what i said i'm a horny guy huh? I like I it's because you were scatterbrained Is this thing on <laughs> Say, Brian, did you know that around this time, Treble Charger started a movie? Um, I did not. Was that that wasn't the Going the Distance movie, right? That was no, 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 no. That was that was something totally different. They had nothing to do with that. I think that was I think like Swollen Members were in that one, and Avril Lavigne was in that one, but I don't think they were in that one. Yeah, uh, but it was a wacky comedy uh, released in 1998, and uh, it's called Mr. Music, and it stars Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac, as well as uh, the drummer from Fleetwood Mac, as well as uh, Jonathan Tucker, who played Tommy Donnelly on the show The Black Donnellys. And I know you're a big fan of that show. Yeah, it's New York. The, I don't know what the hell accent that was. <laughs> I thought it was Boston. No. It's so Irish, though. No, it's set in Hell's Kitchen, New York, same as Daredevil. Well, I clearly never watched the show, but I know you liked it. Uh, Basic Blot is an aging record company executive looks to breathe new life into his business by promoting his 15-year-old nephew, that's who Jonathan Tucker plays, to vice president. And the band that he's going to turn, use to turn the label around, of course, is Trouble Charger. Uh, Trouble Charger put, uh, put five tracks into the movie, uh, which included a punk rock version of Friend of Mine, which I didn't get to hear. I couldn't find it. But that was sure. a bit of a sign of things to come in the year 2000. Wide Awake Board was released on Network Records July 25th, 2000. Proved to be their best-selling album, reaching platinum status and producing three singles, American Psycho. I know, I know how far you go. 
low. And business. American Psycho is really the reason that we're here today. Ah, that was such a great song. It really was. Well yeah. constructed. It channeled the pop punk uh, vibe of the time without being too pop that you're not really that into it. The lyrics were smart. It had a ton of energy and it's something I still find myself singing today. In fact, I was definitely playing it and singing along to it before we started the podcast up. I was shocked that it wasn't a hit in the US, but it was the best charting single to date in Canada, reaching number four on the Canadian rock charts. It was even nominated for Best Single at the 2001 Juno Awards. But that was the year of Nelly Furtado, and she beat them with I'm Like a Bird. I think American Psycho is a better song. Uh, it's different, but yeah. But also, yeah, I, I, you I gotta feel look. Like American Psycho stood the test of time a little bit better. Maybe, but the thing is, I'm pretty sure that I'm Like a Bird had actual crossover appeal, what Trouble Charger couldn't get. Wasn't that a hit in the States, too? It was a huge hit in the States. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably why. Some of these things, when they have the awards show, they give the award out just because it's like, oh, this is a bigger song. We got to give it to the award of the bigger people. That's nothing to do yes. with who actually made the better song. Yeah. Do you, do you know what? You can, we shit on the Junos a lot. On this. <laughs> do, do you know what the stupidest thing about the Junos is? Is they actually have a category called Best International Release. Oh, yeah. It's just <laughs> Americans they, and stuff or English bands. Just like an American or an English band. It's probably going to get a Grammy anyway. Yeah. What's the point of having that category at a Canadian award show? And then sometimes Shania Twain or Celine Dion or Nelly Furtado is nominated for Best International Artist as well because their sales are so good. Drop the category, Junos, you're stupid. (laughs) All right. Now, getting back to an American psycho. How about this? This kind of sums up the vibe they were going for and uh, the product of the time when it comes to the pop punk sound. It was featured in the movies Dude Where's My Car and American Pie Band Camp. Yeah, that sounds about right. So made an appearance on the TV show Kevin Spencer and on the TV show Tony Hawk's Gigantic Skate Park Tour and uh, it was in the video game NHL 2002, which had a couple of Trouble Charger songs. Yeah, I think Brand New Low was in it. Yeah, Brand New Low was in it. I'll tell you this much, Ted. The movie only, or the song got into only those crappy movies because it wasn't big enough to get into like a classic American Pie movie or a uh, whatever teen comedy of the time. To be fair, though, Dude, Where's My Car was a hit. Not with the critics, but it was a hit. And it has kind of come full circle as one of those so good it's bad movies. Because right. if you ever watch Dude, Where's My Car, it's, it's, I'm going to curse, it's fucking horrible. But. <laughs> It's horrible in a good way. It's so stupid that, uh, you know, you enjoy yourself. Yeah. yeah. I'm no Siskel and Ebert anymore, I, I, as long as it makes me chuckle. Yeah. Now, the reason that, according to Greg Norrie, and, you know, I got this from an interview with him that he did in about 2012, and I'll skip ahead a little bit in the timeline because then Prittle had started writing songs again, and they were touring a little bit again. I hadn't read anything about them being into drugs or dealing with anything, but Greg Norrie is a guy I've seen a lot of interviews with. In this interview, he was like making like direct eye contact with the guy interviewing him, and he was talking in circles, and it was weird. It was, was he on Adderall or Speed or something? I don't know. It might have been something like that. It could have been something like maybe he's got ADHD and he didn't take his uh, pills that day or something like that. But he blames the American branch of RCA for screwing them over uh, for the release of American Psycho. He said that was going to be a huge hit in the U.S. And the only reason it wasn't because they dropped. The two weeks before Wide Awake Awake Board was to be released in the U.S. They fully got dropped by the label. Uh, The Canadian branch, according to him, called them idiots. They couldn't figure out why the American branch would do it. And I have not been able to find Nori's reasoning. He says he knows why the American branch dropped them. In this interview, the guy's like, tell me why. He goes, I've already told that story before. And he's like, you're not going to tell me? He's like, they got to come to one of my lectures for that I do at colleges for music production. He's like, yeah, it's really tense and weird. Is this a, was this <laughs> an interview with Gian Gameshi? That feels like an interview with Gian Gameshi. Literally, I got it off of the Chorus Entertainment YouTube page. It's just some local jock oh, okay. who's interviewing, but they decided to film the interview. They did it in front of like, uh, it must be like, maybe it was Canadian Music Week or something like that, but they did it kind of in like a convention area. There wasn't a lot of people around. Uh, they were also on a balcony and Nori was getting freaked out by how high up they were. It was a weird interview. I was just looking for 
any like trouble charger interviews to and i watched one from him two years later he was fine he must have just been having a bad day but he blames that american uh branch for dropping them for american psycho not being a bigger hit and ever since then he's had a major grudge toward major record labels he hates them. yeah well it's one of those things they invest a lot of time and money but you're just a name on that roster so they have so many fingers and so many pies that they wouldn't think twice about it it's like the nfl yeah you can, you can make a lot of money but there's just no loyalty there because like, the nfl is the only one that has, doesn't have guaranteed money you know what i mean Right. So it's like yeah. they just uh, they don't give you a chance. The the it's different back in the nineties, early nineties where you they basically knew it would take almost three albums to get something out of you, like a return. So they had much more patience. But for whatever reason I guess they didn't have that patience with Trouble Charger. But it's sad. I really think that American Psycho could have become an anthem down south. That was their biggest hit. I'm bummed that it didn't get bigger. But you know, why don't we board? Produced some some other pretty good singles, including Brand New Low, which I was a big fan of. Uh, don't remember. It said it didn't chart. I clearly remember Brand New Low getting extensive play on Much Music. I remember oh, the yeah. video and they the were edge. in jail. Yeah, and The Edge. It was also featured in NHL 2002. It was a great song. Uh, but I wanted to bring up the cover for the single of Brand New Low because it kind of explains why Trouble Charger maybe didn't get that push down south aside from the record label shenanigans. So on the cover of the Brand Brand new low single. The four members are wearing Randy River-esque clothing, uh, including khaki pants. And all four members have clearly wet themselves. It looks like a straight-up ripoff of Blink-182, and it might have been why they weren't successful uh, in the pop-punk realm. I think kids wanted to hear snotty pop-punk from teenagers and not dudes in their 30s that were chasing trends. And also, you feel bad for Bill Prittle, because at this time, he wants to just wear his flannel and play some shoegaze and there he is wearing like a puka shell necklace with his hair bleached wetting his pants on an album cover i'm sorry (laughs) sorry they dragged you through this Do you think that might have been part of the reason? Yeah, it just, the late 90s, early 2000s was just, uh, there was so much to choose from. Like, you had bands like Lit, and then, like, your Eve Sixes, all these, like, alternative rock. um, That were kind of punk. Yeah, and then Goldfinger started losing their more ska roots, going the more softer punk route, and Blink kind of uh, sanded off a lot of their rough edges, uh, pretty much Dude Ranch and Beyond. Um, The one hit one like American Hi-Fi and SR75. Yeah, I was about to say them. Yeah, I was yeah. about to say those. Yeah. And uh, who was the other one? Uh, then your Simple Plans, your Good Charlotte started to emerge around the same time. Right, and they were way more on the pop end of it. Yeah. Than the punk end. Yeah. But at least with those guys, they made it big because they were young. Yeah. And they also would have friends like, now granted, we're about to get into Trouble Charger's relationship with some pretty well-known punk bands, but those guys at least would be able to go on warp tours and they had some of the punk bands giving them credence because they're such a young act, whereas Trouble Charger, A, they're in Canada, so they've kind of got to forge that stuff themselves. Yeah. And all their buddies were like Moist and the Tea Party and Sloan who aren't playing this style of music or appealing to that segment of the population yeah and even like bands that would even come close to being a contemporary that kind of ran like the kind of not even punky but the indie rock but harder was like a matthew good band yeah but matt good is just so serious all the time he's like i'm an artist fuck these doors <laughs> he doesn't have any time for everyone wetting themselves unless exactly. it's him from a uh, prescription pill overdose well that was the other thing too i could see matt good not having any friends at that time because he he wasn't uh diagnosed with his bipolar yet yeah. everyone just thought he was an asshole. <laughs> now, uh, I wanted to get into, uh, oh, th- another reason, and I noticed it really clearly on this album, because in this album, you really notice that Nori is now the front man of the band. Bill Priddle, who does a really great job, I wrote Cheat Away. He sounds really good, Bill Priddle, on that album, uh, on that song, Cheat Away. And it shows that he can sing. He just chose to sing in that <laughs> type of voice. All right. Another thing, though, Greg Norrie can't hide his Northern Ontario accent. That does come through in his singing. You can see, like, when he says an S, it's like a shh, you know, like, shh, you know, and uh, his L's are really, yeah, yeah, not la, la. 
You know, I think that it might have irritated an American audience when you can hear a Canadian accent. I know people don't like it when English bands sing in their English accents. Maybe that had something to do with it. Too. Maybe that. I maybe I haven't spent enough time up north like you do because you oh. live there. Oh. Uh, but I mean, that was also the changing of this like weird era of singing. Like you get Billy Joe who had yeah. this like stupid way of singing where he's like, don't you know? Like he's having a stroke mid sentence. Um, I really noticed that. Like he really. It's 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 a California accent. They elongate certain like like Tom DeLong wouldn't say Tom DeLong. He'd be like, my name is Tom DeLong. Like, oh yeah, like, there's that California. Yeah. 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 I don't know what you and, mean. And that bleeds in. It's not Nicholas Cage. I know it was a little Nick Cagey, wasn't it? Well, he's from Long it, Beach. Yeah, it's true. But it bleeds into their way of singing. So there's that. Then all these bands, even if you weren't from California, would try to emulate that a little bit. I noticed that. Anyway. You want to know something? I've been up here in Thunder Bay, and before that Perry sound, and they got a little bit of the accent there. So I've been in central to northern Ontario since 2013. So we're going on eight years, and I'll catch myself every now and then seeping in a couple of. You know, sometimes it'll be no instead oh of you know no. <laughs> the long O, the soft A instead of hat or man, hot or man. You know, stuff like that does seep into my subconscious every now and then. The long O and the soft A, and when I do it, I get so mad at myself, but it happens. Well, when COVID is over, if you come down for a visit, if I catch you, I'll glad you slap you upside the head. <laughs> I'll knock that out of you. <laughs> it's funny. I make fun of my wife all the time because the way they say uh, coach and couch up here are the exact same. Hey, have a seat on the coach. Hey, you doing there, coach? The trash accent for trash people. <laughs> it's, it's how they talk because the Minnesota influence up here too. That's right, true. and it gets worse when you get up to Thunder Bay because it's Michigan that borders the Sioux. So that's a that's a little bit midwestern, right? So you still got yeah. the you get the Chicago still uh, sheeping <laughs> up there through Michigan, and then up here it's eh, don't you know, eh, you know, in Minnesota. So that has an impact on it as well. So boy, did we get off topic? Oh my God! <laughs> I mean, at least no one mistakes you for being American. A couple of my relatives say I sound American. I've been mistaken for American all the time. All the time, people think I'm American. I've been that's been a knocking against me in radio really we're not americans here it's not <laughs> detroit it's detroit it's not resources it's resources oh yeah it's I'm resources totally... that's what that's i what said, I, said. <laughs> I know i know <laughs> but they pick on me for it they say it's not too american bobby generic it's generic what? We grow up. We, we grow up. We grew up watching American television yeah. and American movies and listening to American and a lot of Canadian music too. Yeah. But these things are going to seep in, you know. The Just only happened. Canadian thing I know you watched was Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi, Degrassi High. High. Kids in the Hall. That's true. Love me some kids in the hall. Yeah, but none of them are. It's it's not a TV show. You and me, we'd plump our asses on the couch, get a couple of cans of Mountain Dew and a bag of chips. You'd go, hey, pass me the sperm killer. You'd do that all the time. We'd watch much music until it was dinner time. And then we'd start watching Seinfeld or whatever was on. You know what I mean? That was our routine after school from like grade seven up. So we watched a lot of Canadian stuff too. That's true. Getting way off topic. I enjoyed Wide Awake Board. I thought it was a good album. (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed it. I can see why OG Trouble Charger fans wouldn't like this album because they really abandoned um, that original sound. But I like the catchy and upbeat songs. I love the pop punk guitar licks. And I wrote, uh, they make you want to spike your hair and strap on your favorite chain wallet. Yeah, and get your nice sweatband. Oh, yeah. Well, we're about to get into some sweatband territory. (laughs) Let me me talk about uh, Greg Norrie for a second here. Because, uh, like I said earlier, this is when he became the out-and-out leader of Treble Charger. He was doing all of the interviews for the band, and his ambitions were pretty clear that it wasn't just performing on TV. It was working his magic behind the scenes. And he became the manager and house producer for a little pop-punk band from Ajax, Ontario, known as Sum 41. And they started to blow up everywhere. And his influence on the band runs a lot deeper than people realize. He actually convinced Derek Wibley to move from just playing guitar for Sum 41 to taking over lead vocalists. Uh, lead vocals. He fired the band's previous 
lead vocalist, this guy John Marshall. Greg Norrie said, you're gone. Wibbly, you're going to sing and play guitar. Yeah. Who is this guy chirping <laughs> Derek Wibbly's ear? Like, hey, it worked. Loser. It worked. It became huge. Yeah, but they could have been huge with this John Marshall fellow. Oh, we don't know what John Marshall sounds like. He might have been <laughs> terrible. He might have sounded like Bill Prittle. <laughs> I'm kidding. We like you, Bill. Don't worry. Uh, there's more good stuff coming up about you, too, Phil. Relax, okay? Keep listening. <laughs> Are you in Indianapolis, Bill? <laughs> he also produced uh, Sum 41's first four albums and uh, produced work for Canadian groups like Marianas Trench and Headley, who had massive success up here, um, and even uh, for the American pop-punk outfit Autopilot Off. And I do remember some uh, gelled-up, uh, ricket-wearing uh, poser skate-punk kids wearing Autopilot Off t-shirts. Your buddy, Walker, your buddy Walker had one. Ugh. <laughs> my, my nemesis <laughs> he's a good guy leave him alone <laughs> uh and actually greg nori that has continued for him uh even though treble charger really hasn't put out any new music in the past what's going on like 14 years i think it's like 17 years now uh he still works as a producer for network records and serves as uh, one of the heads of the management company bunk rock music so well that's the, his ambitions lay. the last album was their last album right they haven't put out anything since they haven't put million? out since de- deto- detox yeah. and we're about to get into detox right now yeah if you would like brian oh i got some things to say about that you do okay that's interesting um because you know what I actually uh, thought Detox was the best album. I enjoyed it the most. Well, I had the best time listening to Detox uh, forward, uh, forwards and backwards. I really liked it. I've listened to it a lot, too. I enjoyed it, but it literally just sounded like another Sum 41 record. It literally oh, it, sounded like it, of, uh, it was literally just like cast-offs from like the Fat Lip album and yeah. like before it does this look infected. And then you get that one song. I forget what song it is. It's a blatant ripoff of Counting the Days by Goldfinger. Real bouncy. I know what yeah. you mean. Yeah. At least uh, Greg Nori didn't try rapping like some 41 did. Nori threw the party like my name was El Nino. <laughs> that would that would have gone. Yeah, but that's a fun so. song. Yeah, but I'm mean, thinking it's fun when snot nosed 22 year olds do it, not when an old man does it. Yeah, sure. Even though he's probably like younger than me when they put out this album. <laughs> still. <laughs> still, still, still. So Detox was released in August of that year. What was it? 2002, I think. Yeah, 2002. And it was actually co-produced by Derek Wibley. So maybe that's why there's some 41 influence all over it. But that I got to give – it goes full circle because some 41 had Greg Norrie's influence all over them. Wibley's doing the co-production. It just goes full circle. It's 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 Greg Norrie influenced, really. Yeah. Uh, Detox was certified, uh, certified gold in Canada, peaking at number 10 on the charts. And it received a Juno nomination for Rock Album of the Year but lost out to Gravity by Our Lady Peace. I think they were screwed on this one. I do. I think yeah, that's the I'll, better record than uh, Gravity by Our Lady Peace. I'll give uh, I'll give you that because Gravity had uh, is that is the that one with Innocent? Innocent. Hold yeah. on, you know what? I'm gonna have to check it out here. I'm on uh, Spotify right now. Oh, somewhere out there. I know you're out there somewhere out there. Oh yeah. And Innocent's on there too. Those are the big hits from that. Yeah. Ah, that was when like RLAP started losing me. Yeah, my brother. This is one of the few times my brother said something that made me laugh. He's like, oh, clearly Chantel Kreviazic has rain made it by the balls here. <laughs> well, how, isn't that interesting? She has not by the balls, but his voice went down. I know. <laughs> that was when our late piece lost it for me. Was that I love that ah, 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 stuff. And then it was like, last time I talked to you, you were all out of space. I don't know. Anyway, well, this episode's not about Our Lady Peace, though, is it? No, but you get two guys with focusing problems, is what you get. (laughs) Three singles were released from Detox, but without question, 100 million was the biggest. It was featured in the video game NHL 2003. And look at this from the Il Scarlet episode. We're going back to the Casby Awards. It won. They actually won an award. They won the Casby (laughs) for favorite new single. And the music video for for 100 million. It features cameos from Sum 41, Avril Lavigne, 
as well as two bands that were likely, one definite, the other one's likely, going to cover a future episodes of Canada FM, Gob and the Swollen Members. It reached number one on the Much Music Countdown. Again, the only countdown that truly matters is the Much Music Countdown, at least for me, and was nominated for five Much Music Video Awards, winning Best Rock Video and Best uh, Rock Video Director. Wendy Morgan directed that video. I went to look her up on IMDb to see what other stuff she did, but there's like 10 Wendy Morgans, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I I couldn't figure out which one. There's one that did some like Gnarls Barkley stuff, so that was her. Hey, did some cool stuff. The strange thing I've noticed going through the discography, Brian, and maybe you had the same thing because I know you got some notes here for Detox. Did you find that the first half of their lineup, so NC-17, self-titled, and uh, maybe it's me, that you preferred the Greg Norrie songs more? And then, like, on Wide Awake Board and Detox, you kind of preferred the Bill Prittle ones a little bit more just because they stood out more and they had a different vibe to it. That's, that's, how, that's how I felt. Yeah, because with Detox, I felt like this album lacked a bit of a what they – an identity. It was like they okay. were – they were caught with like a time and place record. It's like, you know, we talked about stuff yes. that, uh, uh, what's the face? Doug and the Slugs. Like the last couple albums were yeah. very of that time. Well, Same thing had with that this. Maestro one, too. Yeah. We'll stick to your vision on it. How that was very much a product of its time. I see what you mean. It's, it's snotty pop punk. Yeah. And it is for teenagers. Yeah. They do kind of feel like, even though I like the music on this, this is my favorite record by them. They do feel like, a band of old guys that's like playing a high school dance and they're gonna they're kind of kind of try to hide their age just a little bit to speak to the young people do you get that vibe at all not only that i'm, I'm gonna pull a joke from uh drove it taylor like with their their look it's like what was it a two for one sale at hot topic <laughs> well one thing that Greg Norrie and Bill Prittle did agree on is that at this time, their collaboration as artists could have been a lot better because they did dive deep into that pop punk. And during the tour for Detox, that really wasn't sitting well with Bill Prittle. It came to a head, man. They got into it. Prittle never identified with the pop punk sound and decided to take a break from the band after touring was done. However, Norrie said to him, hey, man, you want to go? Get out. He kicked him off during the tour and actually replaced him with Kelly Osborne's guitar player, a guy by the name of Devin Bronson to finish the tour, which kind of sucked because if you're an OG Treble Charger fan and you wanted all those like old school Bill Prittle songs, halfway through the tour, you're just being going to be like, nope, this is the Greg Norrie show now. That would have been a disappointment for those old school fans. Well, uh, it's like I've said, a lot of bands like uh, when one guy kind of like really takes over musically and everything, it's one yeah. of the things that kind of tries to make them a certain way, but it also could tear them down in the end. I've said that about multiple bands like Talking Heads and Boingo and all these other ones. You, and Oasis. It makes They make the band, but they also tear it apart. What's the old expression? Too many cooks in the kitchen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that was well, the that's, issue. That's the fishbone story is too many cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it actually worked out for the best for Bill Prittle, though. He got to go back to do indie rock, which is what he loved. It's what he wanted to do. He kept doing stuff with the broken social scene. He has his own band now, The Prittle Concern, which is still making music. He did fine, and he's happy. And him and uh, Greg Norrie, they reconnected. They played a couple of festival dates across the country in 2013 and 14. But they've been consistently teasing new music since 2014, and nothing new has surfaced. In that weird interview I saw with Greg Norrie, he says... When Treble Charger does release new music, it's going to sound nothing like NC-17, and it's going to sound nothing like Detox. He says it's going to have a very Wilco sound, which I actually feel like would be a really good fit for these guys. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's funny, actually, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to this uh, soon. How much more facts? I, I can hold on to my point. How much more stuff do you have before we get to why weren't they bigger? Uh, that's actually coming up next. You can jump into it right now if you want. Okay. Well, my whole thing is no matter what era of music they were in, in the like mid to late 90s or the 2000s, I've always had this mentality of I'd rather listen to it by a band who just is better. Like I'd rather listen to Wilco over like that early trouble charger or i'd rather listen to i don't know certain not all pop punk but maybe there's certain pop punk i'd rather listen to over that like trouble chargers attempt at pop punk because they they more know what they are so they can lean into it a little bit better i used to hate certain some of those pop punk bands but i've kind of softened on them because they know what they are they're okay with it well yeah but it's it's 
it's also something that you're going to look foolish doing when you're 45 years old. I don't think he was 45. Well, I'll say now. No, I, okay, hold on. Let me, let me find out what old Greg Nori is now. All right. I wasn't talking about back then. Hold on here. Greg Nori. Here we go. He is born in 1962. That makes him 58 years old. Oh, shit. Yeah, they were 45 back then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you said 62? He's 58. I don't know, but he, you said born in 62. Yeah, he's born in 62. So, so in two, been, yeah, he was 40. Like our age. He was 40. Oh, he's 40, so they're older than us, yeah. In 2002, he would have been 40. Yeah. So, yeah, they were old guys playing the high school dance. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, Priddle leaving is probably the best thing for them. They're back together. And doing a Wilco sound, I think, would be great for them. Because that's music that is acceptable for dudes in their late 50s to play. Yeah. Put on a flannel man. All right. Get some country influences. This is what you should do. And I think people would love that if they put out another song, another album that had like a Wilco influence to it. Really, I think and I think that you said it best, Brian. I think that when you've got a wide landscape of things and it's kind of what we talked about with the Maestro episode, only certain bands can pass through that sieve. Right. Yeah. And when you're talking pop punk, you get a few of the stragglers like American Hi-Fi and SR71 that were trend chasers that only had one hit. But the kids want to hear people their own age, not yeah. dudes in their 40s. And I do think that that was ultimately why. And and record label screw jobs. Yeah. Why American Psycho was not a bigger hit. It's a, it's a shame. I love that song. And also, just for like shits and giggles too, you got to look at like so. I I was looking at the year-end charts for 2000 and 2002. Yeah. And the musical landscape too of what was popular. There obviously like alternative rock had its own spot, but it, that was like the tail end of the pop boom was still in there so there's a lot of pop r&b r&b uh that was really hip and then that was also gave birth to the this the the shit storm of like new metal like not there's a lot of good new metal but that was like you and me listen to hell on a new metal back in the day <laughs> we love new metal come on you would buy hit parader magazine all right, you had a whole a bunch of those. You went to see Corn and Zombie at Cops Coliseum. All right, I was thirteen. Yeah, loved the new metal. Don't act like you didn't. <laughs> I know, and with hindsight, it was hot. Well, there's certain parts that were good. I still, I'll stand by Lincoln Park. Um, Corn for what it was. What? Yeah, I, I like I liked Corn up to like issues. Then after issues, I stopped paying attention to them. Yeah, um, um, but. <laughs> But then, like, Nickelback started to take over. It's new metal. No, no, this I'm just saying. boring. Oh, wait, that's butt rock. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's what I, I'm looking at this, like, chart. And it, there's just so much, like, pop and uh, hip-hop on here. And then, like, even, the, like, the rock that is on here, it's, like, uh, um, Creed, yeah, Default, Chad oh, Kroger dude. and Josie Scott. You remember that song? Yeah, I do, yeah. Um, the one for Spider-Man. Was that Spider-Man 2? Hero. Uh, yeah. Because the other song, there was two singles, and the other one was uh, Sum 41. Yeah. That's that's another track where they were rapping. Um, let's see what else is on here. Like Linkin Park, Nickelback, Ashanti, The Calling, Usher, oh, Puddle of Mud, Avril. Calling. They were terrible. Yeah. Like, there's literally only one great song on here that's on this list, and it was The Middle by Jimmy Eat World. Ah, it is a great song. Like in, in, the, in the world of rock is what I'm saying. Uh, and so with the musical landscape, like what was hip? Like people will sign rock bands, obviously, because, you know, there's rock bands everywhere. But in terms of like what's on the radio, like it's, it's hard to like you take that sieve and you put another sieve in front of it because everyone's focusing on the pop stuff. Right. So it's possible. It's possible. Uh, and that's true. Actually, you're right. The small percentage of rock bands make it through, and the ones that are doing it are usually just trend chasers. Yeah. Happens. All right. I want to close this week off since we're kind of going out of order here a little bit on this episode, but that's okay. Uh, we've, we've really discerned why they didn't make it through in the States. 
it happens. Not every band can do it. But just to show you how big Treble Charger was, for a two-year period of much music, Greg Norrie had his own show. So this band, and I watched the hell out of this show. I didn't even take any notes. I just wanted to talk about this band. Did you watch it? Did you watch I think it? I remember vague scenes here and there but i was just never the one i had my two seat two or three seasons of survivor and then after that i just wasn't down for reality tv it just wasn't my thing this was not like tribal council someone gets voted off every week this was actually a really cool concept i still like this show so what they would do would be uh they'd pick an unsigned band right on Sunday, uh, much music could be filming in their house, and who shows up but their musical guru for the week, Greg Nori. And he would take, and he, to his credit, he was brutally honest with these bands. Just like he had uh, some 41 fire John Marshall, he'd have people fire uh, band members on the show. He'd add band members, he'd tell them to change shit, right? Basically, this band at the end of the week, and after spending a week with Greg Norrie and getting to use great production equipment, were going to perform for a panel of industry judges. And actually, for those of you who are watching in the States, this was when uh, Hannah Simone from New Girl was a much music VJ. And she was one of the judges that would always be on there every week. Anyhow, uh. just, if you're an American and you're watching, yeah, there's just someone you, someone you know is on that show. <laughs> I knew she was a VJ. I didn't know she was part of that. And I had so many great memories watching this show just because I really liked seeing a band get profiled that you'd never heard of. And often that they would try to pick a band uh, that was a little bit different. I'll give you a couple of examples. Nori had to work with kind of like a progressive metal band. Three-piece band, like to do 10-minute songs. They did not have a lead singer. They just did instrumentals. And they were happy doing that. They were music for musicians, right? And Nori thought they were awesome, but he bluntly told them, guys, you need a lead singer. You're not going to catch fire with any record label if they can't sell songs because no one just wants to hear you do, 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 do for 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. This ain't hot jazz. Yeah. So he brings them a singer. They did like a 15 minute practice with him. The lead singer was like, dude, not going to work. Fired him. Not Greg Norrie telling him to fire him. The guy. So they told Norrie, listen, we don't give a shit what you think. We want to play our instrumental metal. And that's the end of the story. So he like shook their hands and best of luck. They went in front of the judges. They killed it for 10 minutes. They kept coming back to Greg Norian to be like seven minutes, 25 seconds. And he'd be like, let's do the play. And uh, oh yeah, of course they, they didn't give them a pass. They're like, you're an awesome band, but we can't sell you to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was cool. They stayed true to their roots. Um, there was... I remember a band that actually got a contract was this like 22 year old kid, this like 12 year old stepbrother, and they would rap about robots and like watching Pokemon, and they got a record deal. Oh and it was so weird. People were like, "It's so unique. It's so different." And I'm like, "This is weird." But they got a record <laughs> deal. Um, I remember there was this band. They insisted they were going to be the first band ever to mix metal with Eurobeats. And they did it. It wasn't really something I'd go out and buy, but I really appreciated their effort. And Nori told them it wouldn't work. They went up there. They didn't get signed, but at least they had the gumption to go up there and do it. Um, there's a lot of memories. I actually saw one of the bands that was approved inside a record deal live, this band Street Pharmacy. I saw them open for... Uh, Sublime with Rome at Hockey Fest. Actually, ironic, the week uh, Walter Gretzky's passing. This was his big ball hockey tournament. I saw them open for Sublime with Rome there. And uh, Nori told them, you have a sound that's very ska, which is oversaturated and repetitive. I turned the episode off. It made me so mad. Son of a bitch. (laughs) They showed him. They got a record deal. Yeah. 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 I mean, at uh, that at that time, he wasn't wrong because, like I said, I watched that one Ska in the 90s documentary, and by like 2000, 2002, Ska was basically toast because it had been oversaturated and the scene moved on to new metal. And this was 2009. As oh, well. was it? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is a while. <laughs> this took a while. Um, actually, uh, 
Jordy Lewis, who we went to uh, high school with, he was on an episode of Disband. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't in a band. He was uh, working at like the recording studio. And it's yeah, I knew he majored in music yeah. uh, production. And Nori's sitting there listening. He turns to him and he's just sitting there like, and Nori's like, she's really good, isn't she? He's like, yeah. <laughs> Still, it's kind of cool seeing for people who can't yeah. see what Ted's doing because this is an audio podcast. His eyes were bugging out of his head as to appear very confused. <laughs> it was cool seeing someone I knew on that show. Uh, but no, I have a lot of good memories of uh, Disband. It was a lot of fun, and I figured I'd that end one up with seems that. that one actually seems practical. Do you remember? Because it was wasn't it around the same time that Puffy had his. But well, it was basically like he was trying to get like 10 different butlers. Well, no, that was uh, Farnsworth Bentley's, uh, his butler's butler show. So <laughs> he did, he produced it. But that was something totally different. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. Farnsworth Bentley's butler show. <laughs> Wasn't there an episode where like they had the people walk from like Brooklyn to Manhattan yeah, to get was, cheesecake or making, something? That was, that was making the band too. And yeah, they had to walk from Brooklyn to Manhattan to get Puffy a slice of cheesecake. Yeah. And uh, they forgot. Uh, so, so by the time they got there, it was closed. So they walked back and Puffy's just leaving the building. Like he actually, to his credit, he stayed at work till they got back, which is like four in the morning. And they told him, no, this is before they left. No, he went home. Sorry, he went like he went home. They were there when they got back. Before they left, they told Puffy they were going to do this, and uh, it'd be it was ridiculous for him to do it. He fired them all, and then they were like, "Okay, we 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 will do it." He's like, "All right, here we are. My fucking cheesecake." So they went. You know, if for close. someone who's like demanding, day. you think you'd want them to just drive in so he could get said cheesecake quicker. They had even... to prove their loyalty to him. Yeah, but is he an idiot? Because it's a uh, cheesecake. Entertainer! Has... It was good television. Yeah, but it's not practical. <laughs> the cheesecake, because I assume it was the summertime. The cheesecake would be long, like gross, and like melted, or not like melted, it was, like, but like fall. It was a little bit cool out. Okay. Yeah. Still. Uh, no, that, that was a, that was great making the band too. That was the best one. You had the guy Dylon, who was the reggae singer. He's like, who are the five best rappers in the world? Dylon, 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 Dylon. <laughs> I love that show. And then they had those, the other thing. None of them knew the lyrics to Rapper's Delight or Juicy. And so mm. their punishment for not being able to rap those back to P. Diddy verbatim off the top of their head, because they're essential songs, was to walk to go get them a cheesecake. Okay. And then the next day, when he was, you know, nowhere to be found, they're miserable. They walked in, um, collectively rapping "Juicy" for him, and he was, he was, he was happy with that. Oh, P. Diddy, trying to be eccentric like Prince, but without any of the talent. <laughs> I remember they did making the band three uh, with Diddy, but this was for his backup band, and. Uh, what do I remember? I remember uh, he didn't he, – he he told uh, – so he had a, like a drummer, a bass player, a keyboard player, backup singers all auditioned for him. And uh, he – the two guys who auditioned for a guitar, he didn't take either of them. He said, I'm not feeling guitar since tour, man. So neither of them competing against each other got the spot. I remember the last guy who got a spot, his name was Brockett. And he was like this German, oh, nerdy white guy. And he stood out like a sore thumb. But he did some crazy shit on those keyboards. And did he loved them. <laughs> I'm just picturing him on stage. It's like, all right, I'm going to give my man Brockett a little solo. He's just like looking so confused. It's like, what am I doing here? <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't pre-programmed. Oh. This bracket guy. If he, he, he was shit, he'd be, you know what I mean? That's the, how it would have worked. <laughs> yeah. Boy, look at you making me relive all of the. We should have started with this discussion on this band. <laughs> I mean, but if no, you want, I could drop it in the start. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll leave it here at the end. It's okay. We did a good job covering Trouble Charger, and we're allowed to have a little fun reminiscing. <laughs> that old television where we're going off on Trouble Charger. Say next week on Canada FM, 
We're uh, <laughs> diving back a couple of decades. Uh, we're going to explore New Wave again. And just like Doug and the Slugs, it's another band from the West Coast. Uh, Brian, I know you're not a strip club, club guy, but what would you consider to be the greatest strip club song of all time? Uh, I mean... I feel like Cherry Pie by, what is it, Rat or Warrant? Or uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me? Very, 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 very mainstream picks. Bargain of the Barrel. Okay, I'm sorry, Ted. Do you you frequent, like, hipster strip clubs where the girl's wearing, like, a plaid (laughs) G-string? And uh, it says, I only take uh, Swedish currency in my (laughs) G-string? Fair enough, fair enough. I challenge you with Eyes of a Stranger by the Payolas. That's a great song. The Payolas are a great band. And we're going to be taking a look at them next week on Canada FM. Yeah.